Luke chapter 8 is where we're at. We're going to be picking it up in verse uh, 22 where uh, we left off. Last week, if you're with us, you know that we looked at what an active relationship with Jesus Christ looks like. Jesus here, he's been teaching in the region of Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee. And his focus has been on the potential of God's word to bring transformation. God's word is powerful, um, but the potential part has to do with you and with me. Uh, And Jesus said that the word of God is like a seed and that the human heart is like the soil that receives that seed. And depending on the condition of the heart, uh, the potential is there, Jesus said, to to produce a great uh, harvest. And Jesus likens likens that transforming harvest uh, to lighting a map. Uh, He says that if our, to, to lighting a lamp. He says that if our lamps are lit, that what burns within us will shine forth uh, from us as we just live on fire for Jesus uh, and as we burn bright for for all to see. But Jesus emphasizes that we need to be careful how we hear and that we need to be careful what we hear because how and what we hear makes all the difference between shining the light of the gospel and covering the light of the gospel. And so that's a recap, but today uh, the scene shifts from how we hear God's Word to how we heed God's Word, how we heed God's Word, and specifically how we heed God's Word in faithfulness. And we're going to look at three aspects of faithfulness today. We're going to look at the faithfulness of Jesus to His promises, we're going to look at the faithfulness of Jesus to His people, and we're going to look at the faithfulness of Jesus proclaimed in the lives of you uh, and me. And so we begin, if you're taking notes, you can write it down, the faithfulness of Jesus to his promises. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. Now it happened on a certain day that he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake and they launched out. Now, Jesus, as I said, he's been teaching in the region of of Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee, and he's had tremendous success so far. People are flocking to him, and there's so many people that are flocking to him, and he's ministering to so many people, he and his disciples together. I mean, they're going without meals. They're they're laboring hard. I mean, they they are so engaged and working so feverishly that Jesus' own family, his mom and, and his brothers and sisters come, uh, and they try and pull him out. They're, they they, they kind of think he's lost it uh, because he's just so focused and fixated on ministering to people to his own sacrifice. And, and so, you know, such incredible success and, and, and uh, just a, a foot-to-the-floor kind of part of, of his ministry. Um, and Mark's gospel tells us, Mark's gospel sheds a lot of light on this particular uh, scene here that we're reading about today. Mark's gospel tells us that in the midst of all of this success, that Jesus went off alone early to pray. It's not in my notes, but man, all of us got to get away with the Father. We just got to get a time where we can have silence and where we can have solitude and where it can just be us and our Bibles and we can just be there waiting upon the Lord, waiting to receive from the Lord. Because the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so we, we have to get our compass heading 
from God the Father. Amen? So critically important. And we can get caught up in the details. We can get caught up in things, even in the, the pattern of success. I mean, we as church leaders need to take a hard look at, at Jesus' example to get away. Because sometimes things just seem so intuitive. They just, <clears throat> hey, we're firing on all cylinders and let's, let's go ahead and just keep you know, doing all of this stuff. I think of Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. He sees Jesus transfigured and, and you know, the whole thing goes down. And his response is to say, hey, this is good. Let's stay here. Let's, let's build some tabernacles, some tents. Let's set it all up. Let's stay right here. And, and effectively, Jesus is like, no, that's not how it's going to go down. We're not going to stay right here. We've got work to do, right? That's what's going on here. Jesus gets away alone for prayer. And when he came back, Jesus said to his disciples, put up on the screen for you, Mark 1.38, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I have come. You see, what happens is Jesus is on mission. He's not content to rest. He's not content to take his foot off the gas. He's not even content to limit his outreach where he's you know, working so feverishly nobody could accuse him of resting, of taking his foot off the gas or anything like that. But Jesus says, let's go over to the other side. There's other people that haven't heard the gospel. So, so let's, let's go out there as well. See, the, the desire of our Lord is that the good news of the gospel should go out to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. This was the Lord's command to his disciples as after he died and, and rose again and ascended into heaven and, and told them, hey, you know, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has foreordained that he, that he should do. Don't try to figure out what's going on now here. You just be faithful to be witnesses and don't just get stuck in one place. Go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, go to the ends of the earth. And the disciples, even if you read the book of Acts, they got, they got sucked up into the success of what was happening in Jerusalem. I mean, after the day of Pentecost, man, things in Jerusalem were, were firing on all cylinders. And, and they're, they're having great testimony between all the people, and God's doing this wonderful work, and the Lord had to allow persecution, actually, to come against the church of Jerusalem after a long period of time of their successful ministry there, and it's almost as if the Lord's like, no, 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 you're getting too comfortable here in Jerusalem. I said Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, and so they're scattered. And it says, as they're scattered, they went everywhere preaching the gospel. And so Jesus comes back from his time in the wilderness, of time in prayer, uh, time of, of getting away with the Father, and he says, okay, hey, look, we got to go out. We, we have work to do. Later on here in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 14, and we'll get to this in a while, but there's a wedding banquet, and Jesus tells, the, or he tells a parable about a wedding banquet. About, you know, man throws this big wedding banquet and all the invited guests don't come. And so, so what does he do? He tells his servants, go out into the highways and the byways. And just invite, you know, who, whoever you want to come. Here's how, he, here's how he says it, Luke 14, 23. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. And the idea of that word compel uh, is uh, to compel by love. In other words, it, 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 the, 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 the attraction of the Lord's invitation to come into, into to relationship with Him, to come to this banquet that, that is representative of, of our salvation and of our being you know, with uh, the Lord in heaven uh, is, is so attractional. 
And so it's this compelled by love. It reflects God's great desire to fill his house. And so here in Luke 8.22, Jesus takes his disciples across the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum to the region of the Gadarenes. Why? Because he loves all men. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting Life, But, verse 23, as they sailed, he, Jesus, fell asleep, and a windstorm came down <coughs> on the lake, and they were, fill, they were filling with water, <coughs> and they were in jeopardy. Again, Mark's gospel tells us that when they set sail, they actually have several boats that they all got into. They all didn't fit into just one boat. Uh, and so they were, there were several boats kind of in convoy going over from Capernaum uh, uh, to the region of the Gadarenes. And it also tells us that they set sail in the evening. Now, it wasn't unusual for them to set sail in evening. You'll recall Peter was a fisherman. Fishermen fish at night, typically on the Sea of Galilee. So setting out at evening was not unusual Jesus here, he's obviously exhausted, so, so he, he promptly falls asleep, sleeping so hard that he sleeps through this storm that whips up. Now, if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, if you're going with us to, to Israel in 2019, um, you'll go to the Sea of Galilee, and you'll see um, that it's, you know, it's relatively a, a small lake. Um, it's about 13 miles long at its longest point. It's about 8 miles wide at its widest uh, point. It's about 150 feet deep. Um, but the thing about the Sea of Galilee is that it lies 680 feet below sea level. And, and immediately adjacent to the Sea of Galilee, what you have uh, is the Golan Heights. You see, the, the Sea of Galilee sits in a deep valley that's carved between the African and the Arabian tectonic plates. It's known as the Jordan Great Rift Valley. And so you've got this really, really deep valley, but you've got these really, really high mountains just adjacent to it. The Golan Heights, they rise sharply about 1,700 feet. And so what happens is the Golan Heights actually influence the weather. Uh, and, and so they can cause these, these, the air pressure differences, cause these great winds to just come sweeping down the Golan Heights. And they hit the Sea of Galilee. And, and it's, it, it just shakes violently. And as a matter of fact, 25, 30-foot seas, so to speak, it's a freshwater lake. They call it a Sea of Galilee. Um, but 25, 30-foot waves on this, on this lake are not uncommon when these storms whip up. So that's exactly what Jesus and his disciples encounter here. But there's something very unique and unusual about this particular uh, storm. Verse 24, it says that they came to him and they awoke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. So, like, you know it's bad when you're with commercial fishermen and they have this kind of reaction. You know, I'll watch Deadliest Catch sometimes and I see him going through stuff and I'm thinking, I'd be in my stateroom sucking my thumb, like, you know, mommy, you know. And these guys are, are out there just like nothing, they're working and walking on the deck, you know. And so when commercial fishermen come and they're freaking out, you know it's bad. They said, hey, we're perishing. <clears throat> and then he arose and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased and there was a calm. But he said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, 
and they obey him. Well, the clue that this is an unusual storm, again, storms common, but something unusual about this one, it lies in that word there at verse 24, the word rebuked. If you see that word, the same word in the Greek is used for those times when Jesus rebuked demons. And so it's possible that there's a demonic force behind this particular storm. See, the Bible tells us that when Satan was cast out of heaven, when he rebelled against God, uh, he took a third of the angels with him, uh, and then he became the ruler of this world. Jesus conferred that title upon him in John chapter 12. Jesus himself said that Satan is the ruler of this world. And so he has, he has power, and he has a certain dominion, Over the earth. And so, uh, you know, Satan coming down to the earth. Now, he's going to be defeated and and was defeated. He hasn't just gotten the memo yet uh, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place. Um, But, uh, and you know, the day is coming. If you're with us in the book of Revelation, you see his time's coming. And he's going to be thrown and cast into the lake of fire and so on. But, um, but Satan, the ruler of this world, he comes down, he, he tempts Adam and Eve to sin. And Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So there is now this, what I like to call this unholy trinity that is as work here in uh, the world. You've got Satan and his demons as one part of that unholy trinity, you have the world system uh, and, and you have your sin nature. And so these three things can conspire and work against us um, to, to not do the things that we want to do, to lead us you know, away from the things of God and so on. And it's not uncommon when Jesus is doing a great work to experience demonic oppression. Demonic oppression. Now, Christians cannot be possessed by demons. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And some people will disagree and dispute about that. Um, But I think it's clear that you cannot, as a Christian, be demon-possessed. But you can be certainly oppressed by the enemy. He He can bring oppression against you. How many of you, by a show of hands, if you're brave enough to, have ever been oppressed demonically? Had demonic oppression? Maybe you're dealing with demonic oppression in, in, a, in, a, in depression or demonic oppression in, you know, some work that you want to do. Just this last week, we had our VBS, and it was this great moving work of the Holy Spirit doing this great thing, 380 kids making professions of faith in Jesus Christ, and we thank the Lord for that, but do you think that the enemy is going to take that sitting down? No, and Pastor Darius and I having conversations just about how oppressed he was demonically, <clears throat> just going in that, going through that, and how, you know, the, this, this unholy trinity, the, the forces of, of Satan and his demons, probably, now by the way, people will ascribe to Satan <clears throat> godly attributes that he does not possess. He does have power in this world, he has dominion over this world. But he, is, he, he doesn't have the attributes of God in the sense that, you know, he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time like God can be. 
So, so Satan can only be at one place in one time in, in this world, but he's got a third of the angels in heaven that fell with him. So he's got a lot of charges demonically that he mobilizes to go out and move and work in the world. So chances are very good that if you and I have experienced demonic oppression, that it's probably not from the big guy himself. It's probably not Satan himself. He's got bigger fish to fry than you or me. <clears throat> but he has demons that he can assign to go out and to attack us. This is just biblical truth. And so what happens is we, we, we experience this attack. We experience the, the attack demonically. We experience the attack by the world system uh, who, that Satan controls. We experience the attack from just our sin nature <clears throat> that, that we, uh, every, every one of us has, that Paul described to the Romans saying, you know, when Adam sinned, he brought death to the world and it spread to everyone. So you and I have this inherited sin nature. So... So this is, this is, you know, what's going on here. So what's happening here with Jesus, it is, again, quite possible that this storm was the result of satanic attack. Uh, and being that it's Jesus, it, it is, you know, very possible. This is Satan himself attacking, not wanting Jesus to advance the gospel, not wanting him to go to the region of the Gadarenes and so on. <clears throat> but having said that, um, op- the opposition that you and I face when, when following Jesus, it doesn't have to necessarily be you know, a direct demonic uh, influence in that way. It, it could simply be circumstantial. It could be that we encounter a, a certain circumstance that isn't necessarily demonically inspired, but some sort of opposition in our circumstances can cause us to experience doubt, to experience uh, times of, of just wanting to give up or to throw in the towel or whatever it may be. See, Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And he said there that the just shall live by faith. Paul again said to the Hebrews in Hebrews eleven six, he said, Without faith it's impossible to please him, to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words, living the Christian life is an exercise of faith from start to finish. You living the Christian life and pleasing God, it is an exercise of faith from start to finish. And the exercise of faith is counterintuitive to our sin nature. See, Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5-7, we walk by faith and not by sight. Now the problem with that is the last time you looked in the mirror, you're a physical being. I'm a physical being. And being physical beings, a walk of faith is counterintuitive to the things that seem natural to us. So often our situations or our circumstances or the things that we can see or, you know, uh, the, the, as a paramedic, we check people's vital signs. Well, in the world, we have different vital signs that we check to, to see, you know, how are we doing? What's the balance in my checkbook? You know, how much income do I have coming in? What, is, what outcome do I have? And the financial pressures that we face, we think of in these terms. And we have to think of these in these terms because we live in a physical world. We are physical beings, but sometimes there's more month than money, and the Lord wants us to walk by faith. Sometimes it's a matter of God just saying, you know, I promise to provide all your needs. Are you going to trust me for that? And he allows things circumstantially to get us to a place to where we're like, man, I, don't, I just don't know if this is, if this is how it's going to go. 
And we have to look to the Lord. I think of Jesus, or uh, Peter in, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 14, Jesus comes walking out on the water. And, and Peter's like, hey, Lord, if that's you, bid that I should come to you. And he's like, all right, Peter, come on out. And, so, and the text tells us, as long as he's walking on the water, Peter's cool. But what had happened to Peter? He took his eyes off the Lord, and, and he started looking at the wind, you know, the effects of the wind on, on the ocean and so on. And he started looking at the waves, and he began to sink. See, we have those times where physically, our senses tell us one thing, you know, and, and we want to react to that. I remember several years ago, we took our, our family, we, we went to the CN Tower in Toronto. And uh, it's like, you know, 114 stories tall or whatever. And they've got this plexiglass floor that they've put in. And, and you know, and the, and it's, it's like really super thick. You ain't breaking through this thing. But there is just something in you that just says it's wrong. And you walk up and you get to the edge of that thing and, and you think, I'm, I'm just going to walk. You get, like psych yourself out. I'm just going to walk. The second you get to the edge of that thing, everything in your body tells you to put on the brakes. I mean, you had people, you know, trying to inch their way out. You had people, you know, kind of maybe trying to crawl their way out. We had, we had three Marines that were there looking at the place and two big, you know, burly Marines and, uh, and they, they, they're inching their way out and then one of their friends jumps on it. They're like, hey, knock it off, man, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, what, is, what does that represent? That's a great illustration of our flesh. And if the Lord, you know, he, he wants us to trust in him, he says it's impossible for us to please him but that we do it by faith. And God puts us in these situations, in these circumstances, to test our faith. You know, what, 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 are, what are you going to do here? And so often, man, we, we fail it. And, we, and so it, it's easy to see how the disciples here can focus on the conditions instead of focusing on the Christ. You know? Now, I want you to notice what the disciples say. What do they say there in verse 24? They say, Master, we're perishing. Right? And again... Mark's gospel gives us more insight, <clears throat> expands on the things that they said to the Lord. Actually, what they said to Jesus was, don't you care that we are going to drown? How, how revealing is that? Because what that shows us is that in their minds, they had complete and utter and total disbelief at this point. In other words, what ha- what's happening is they have no hope of getting to the other side. They have no expectation of getting to the other side. No hope, no expectation that God's word is going to be fulfilled. Why? Because their situation and their circumstances and their senses are all, are all counterintuitive to the faith that Jesus had called them to. Right? They've already decided, look, we are not going over, we are going down. And God doesn't care. They've, they've added it all up. But what did Jesus tell them? In the very beginning, what did Jesus say? He says, we're going to the other side. Jesus said, we're going over. He didn't say, hey, I'll tell you what, let's go out in the middle of the lake and drown tonight. He didn't say that. He said, we're going to the other side. See, the disciples' problem was not the storm around them. It was the unbelief within them. That's their problem wasn't the storm around them. It was the unbelief 
within them. See, they couldn't see that Jesus is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful. They couldn't see that. And let's be honest, we're that way too, aren't we? We're that way too. Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory, right? But what do we do? We doubt. And so I'm in a situation where I go, God's not providing. I got to work overtime. That was my testimony, by the way, for years and years and years and years. It was like, oh, I just, God's not providing. I got to work overtime. And I'm working overtime. And I'm working overtime. And meanwhile, my kids are growing up. And where am I? I'm like so stressed about, you know, having more month than money and trying, trying to make this up. You know, sometimes we get into those situations. We go, man, I got to cheat on my taxes. That's, that's the only way I can make it. I got to cheat on my taxes. Or, you know, it's like, oh, I got to cheat my customers. I have to, you know, sleep with my boyfriend so he'll stay with me, whatever it is. It's like, hey, no, God promised to provide all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Not, not you know, the, the, the guy that you're going to bend your life around. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He promises he'll give us rest. But so often, we're not looking to Jesus to give us rest. And we're like, God, don't you see? Don't you care? And so what do we do? We look to something else. I just need some peace, man. I'll just look to this bottle. I'll just look to this prescription drug or this illegal drug. Or, you know, I'll look to this relationship to, to give me rest. Because God's, God's not giving me rest. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by peace, <clears throat> with supplication, by, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the God of all peace will guard your, heart, your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is our promise, but what do we do? We stress. We worry. We're anxious. I like what Warren Wearsby said. He said, the disciples looked around and saw danger. They looked within and saw fear, but they failed to look up and see God. And you go, well, that's not exactly fair, right? Didn't they cry out to Jesus? Hey, we're paired. Yeah, but they did so with this attitude of doubt, basically saying, we ain't going over, we're going under. And you don't care. That's how Warren Wiersbe can say they failed to look up and see God. Let me ask you a question. Where are you looking today? Where are you looking today? Are you looking around, seeing danger? Are you looking within and seeing fear? Are you looking up? Seeing the Lord. Is, are you in your situation right now? Can you say this? Is your attitude, man, I'm not going over, I'm going under? Maybe today the Lord would say to you, Where's your faith? Where's your faith? And it's interesting because, you know, as I'd said, they're, they, they, they've lost sight of the fact that Jesus is all-powerful. And you see that reflected there at the end of verse 25. They say, who can this be when Jesus, with a word, rebukes the storm and it now stops? They say, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. See, they had a, a, a belief in the Lord up to a certain point. Like Jesus said, it, or Peter said at one point, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. And they had a certain understanding about the Lord. And listen, we have a certain understanding of the Lord, but God wants to bring that up understanding bigger. He wants to, to cause your vision of the Lord to expand and get wider. And God wants you and I to get to a place where we realize just how big and how powerful that He is. And so the Lord allows them to be in this situation. Why? Because He wants to increase their faith. 
They have a crisis of belief. They have a crisis of faith. They get to the point to where they go, we're not going over, we're going under, and you don't care. And the Lord shows up and says, really? There you go. And they're like, whoa. God is all-powerful. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Verse 26, and they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And when he stepped out of the land, there he met him, or there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in uh, the tombs. I think it's Mark's gospel that tells us that there wasn't just one guy, there was two guys. But this is the one that stepped forward. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out. He fell down before him. And with a loud voice, he said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him. And he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, And he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. This man is demon-possessed. And Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? He's speaking to the demon. uh, And he said, legion, because many demons had entered him. By the way, a legion could be as many as 6,000 men. And so this guy is responding that, that there's not just one demon that's possessed this man. And so he says, uh, legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him. They're talking, these guys now begging Jesus, who all powerful, by the way, and they know it. They begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. There is something about the demonic realm that that has this longing to, to embody people. They don't want to be cast out, you know, disembodied. Demons, they, they want to be able to inhabit uh, someone. Don't send us out into the abyss, right? And now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, and so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. And then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. By the way, that is a picture of what the enemy wants to do to you. Satan has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy, Jesus said. And so what happens is when Jesus cast them into the swine, they, having up until this point, obviously having been restrained by God from being able to... They're trying to kill this man. They're doing a good job of it. But they didn't have this man run down the hill and jump off the cliff and and die. God God had not allowed that. But he allows this to go down in the herd of swine just, just for the, the true intentions of what Satan and his demons are. We just see it on full display here. They want to steal. They want to kill. They want to destroy. And so now, given the opportunity, this is exactly uh, demonstrated in this herd of swine. Verse 34, when those who fed them, speaking of the pigs, saw what had happened, they fled. And they told it in the city and in the country And then they went out to see what had happened. This is the whole city and town now, the Gadarenes, coming out. And they came to Jesus and they found the man whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, 
They were afraid. You see what happens to this guy? He's a new creation. Here's a guy everybody in town was, was afraid of, who harassed everybody. Now he, he's clothed, he's washed, he's sitting at the feet of the Lord. He's a new creation. And these people were afraid. And they also, who had seen it, told them by what means he, who had been demon-possessed, was healed. And then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked Jesus, Oh, please, stick around. You've done this wonderful thing in our midst. You are so awesome, God. Let us worship you. No, they asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat, and he returned. What we see here is not only the faithfulness of Jesus to his promises, but secondly, if you're taking notes, we see the faithfulness of Jesus to his people. The faithfulness of Jesus to his people. Now, let me give you a little backstory information. Jesus comes to the region of the Gadarenes. Who are these Gadarenes? Turn over really quickly to Numbers chapter 32. It's the fourth book of the Old Testament. So to your left, Numbers chapter 32. Verses 1 through 5 is where we're going. Now, as you're making your way, here's the deal. Um, The overall message of this book of Numbers is the tragedy of unbelief. That's kind of the big overarching idea of this book I'm having you turn to. And Numbers chronicles the journey from Egypt to the promised land. And the journey should have only taken about 40 days. uh, But it ended up taking about 40 days. Years And towards the end of their wandering, the tribes of Gad and of Reuben, they decided that they wanted to settle east of the Jordan. Now, over the Jordan was the promised land. They wanted to settle just short of the promised land, outside of the promised land. So, Numbers 32, verses 1 through 5, says, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, this is where the, the Gadarenes, the region of the Gadarenes, it comes from Gad, Right? So the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of of Jazer and the land of Gilead, uh, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and they spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, uh, Adaroth, Debon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Uh, uh, that place, Eliel, Shimbam, Nebo, and Beon, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock, uh, as it turns out. Uh, Therefore, they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan." Over the Jordan is the promised land. They stop just short and they say, this'll do, right? Here's the deal. They settled for less. They compromised. That's what these guys did. Now notice why. Verse two, because it was land for livestock, they wanted to protect their stuff. This, this is good for our stuff, for our valuables. So we will stop just short of the promised land. They put their material possessions before God. Should sound familiar. Luke 18, a rich young ruler, right? Uh, puts his material possessions before 
uh, the Lord. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He's like, oh, check, I'll do that. Jesus goes, well, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And Jesus just said it to this guy because he recognized that money was his God. So he's like, well, let me put my finger on what your God is and ask you to get rid of that. And the guy went away sad, right? See, the tribes of Gad, the tribes of Reuben, they compromised for the sake of their stuff. And once you compromise with God, it's a slippery slope. Now, you fast forward 1,400 years, right? Let's go back, back to Luke chapter 8. Fast forward 1,400 years. Let's take a quick inventory of the state of the Gadarenes now. What's going on? Well, certain members of them are demon-possessed and terrorizing the people. The locals are now raising pigs instead of, ca- uh, instead of cattle, right? That's decidedly not kosher. And when Jesus heals a man, they don't respond by praising God. They respond by asking him to leave. In other words, they care more about pigs than they care about people. When it talks about them being afraid, they're like, hey, this guy shows up, and now there goes our money down the hill and, and, and dead. Like, he's going to put an end to our pig business. This is not cool. Now, that may be an oversimplification, but that's the idea of what's going on here. These people care more about pigs than they do people. And they're still more, more concerned about their stuff than they are their souls. Now, even so, here's what I want you to note. Jesus came to them. He came to them. Jesus is faithful even when we aren't. He's over in Capernaum, and people are receiving him, and people are, are hungry for the gospel. And Jesus says, you know what? The Gadarenes over there, they stopped just short of the promised land, and they've gone south hard. They need the gospel. They need Jesus. So Jesus goes to them. He's faithful even when we aren't. The, uh, Paul told Timothy, he said, If we are unfaithful, he, God, remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. God's, the, the, Paul said in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love towards us, towards you and me, and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on, Paul, to, to say this about the Lord. He says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from, here it is, the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, Jesus loves us so much. I want you to see this in the text. He's faithful even when we aren't. Gadarenes hadn't done anything for Jesus' faithfulness. He's faithful. He says to his disciples, we've got to get over there. He's faithful to his people even when the opposition is great. Satan pulls out all the stops, comes against him, huge seas, commercial fishermen fearing for their life. And Jesus says, we're going through all of that because these people are so valuable. And he's faithful to his people no matter how dirty and defiled they are. And I will encounter people regularly who who are just convinced that they've done too much to receive the Lord's forgiveness. they, They are so tripped up by the attack of the enemy, by the accuser of the brethren who Satan has called. And there is a demonic influence in this world that tempts us to sin, and the moment we sin, that same demonic influence will accuse us and tell us that we are the exception, that we're the one that God can't stand because you're so dirty and so vile. And look at this man that Jesus went to see. Now, why did Jesus do that? I want you to take note of verse 27, what Jesus saw. 
What did Jesus see there in verse 27? He saw a certain man. I want you to circle that in your Bibles if you could. See, everybody else saw this wretched, horrible, vile, naked, horrible person. Jesus saw a man. Jesus saw a man. I remember all the years when I was working as a paramedic, some of the people that I would see in the most vile of conditions. Remember we had one patient in particular, it was right during the height of the AIDS epidemic, and we, and we roll up to, the, to this guy's house, and he is a filthy mess. He's dying of AIDS. He's dying alone. And he was on the floor surrounded by conditions I can't even go into in polite company. What was surrounding this man, the filth, the vile stuff. Even into death, he surrounded this, this, this young homosexual man surrounded by all of these things that are just, just vile. And he's laying on the floor dying and he's covered in ants and his own feces and nobody wants to touch him. And you're thinking, man, at that point, I mean, I love to say that, that I'm like Jesus at that moment, just going, let me, this man needs love. Just being able in the moment to go, here's a guy who, who is dying, got maybe weeks to live, and he's on the floor covered in his own feces and ants are eating him alive. And, and can we just show him love and compassion? And, and I gotta tell you, that wasn't my conscious thought. My conscious thought was, why did I have to get this call? Why am I the guy that's got to take care of this guy? I'm just being honest. Jesus saw a man. He saw a man. And Jesus sees that man. Thank you, Jesus, by being able to have thoughtful reflection and, and a just heart check that I, I was able to care for that guy. Give him the love and the dignity that, as a man, he deserves. As a, as, a, as a part of God's creation that he deserves. But Jesus never lost sight of the fact. Get in the boat, guys. Because there's a man over there. There's a certain man over there who needs to be rescued, who needs to be redeemed. And Jesus sees you today. He knows if you need to be rescued. He knows if you need to be redeemed. One final point. We're going to look at the faithfulness of Jesus proclaimed. Look what happens to this man. Verse 38. It says, Now the man from whom the demons had departed, they begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. You see here the faithfulness of Jesus proclaimed. In other words, what we read about here, this man's a new creation in Christ, and we have come full circle now. Now this man is letting his light so shine before men that he can see his good works and glorify the Father in heaven because he's been made a new creation. That's what the Lord wants for you. 
If you are that certain man today that's caught up in your sin or you're that certain man or woman today that's that caught up in sin or that is, that is unbelieving like these disciples, the Lord wants to reach you. He wants to minister to you. He wants to set you free today. He wants you to turn your eyes back to the Lord and trust in him. And if he's done that in your life and he wants you to go out and let your light shine, Go to your family, go to your neighbors, go to your friends. Let them see Christ in you, the hope of glory.